Is it muffled or can you hear? Is that all right? Yeah, it's good. All right. Well, there's a man who went on vacation and left his brother in charge to look after his home and his pet. And he called, the man on vacation called his brother and said, so how's everything going? He said, well, it's okay, except your cat died. And he said, man, you have to tell me that on vacation. He said, you should have just said, you know, like the cat's on the roof and it's getting weak and wait till I get home at least to tell me that, not ruin my vacation. Sorry, I didn't think of that. So a few days later, he called back again. <clears throat> How is everything going now? And he said, well, mom's on the roof. <laughs> Try to be tactful. Anyways, the chapter that we're about to study that you did today is so critical to understand in order to be accurate in our understanding about the filling of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gift of tongues, if we do not grasp what happened here in Acts chapter 2, we will be unable to understand really the rest of the book. The focus of this chapter that is a historical narrative is to tell us about the birth of the church. What we have going on here is a transition as it's the ending of one era, the church uh, the Old Testament era and the beginning of the church age. Jesus had spoken to his disciples uh, truth about the church in preparation for that. And in the Old Testament era, the Holy Spirit, as you recall, came upon people. Sometimes he indwelt people, but it wasn't permanent. That's why David prayed in the Psalms, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. <clears throat> so Jesus had taught the disciples so much about the ministry of the Spirit in John 14 through 16 and how they needed him to come and come alongside them and empower them to glorify Christ. And as we saw last week, after watching Jesus ascend, they stayed in Jerusalem as they were commanded and were waiting for the Spirit to come. So, 10 days have passed and chapter two is what happens next, the coming of the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So the day of Pentecost was an important day in the Jewish calendar. Uh, people were there celebrating it. They were commanded to be uh, observing this special day. Uh, Pentecost literally means 50. It was 50 days after the Passover feast. It's called the Feast of First Fruits in the New Testament. So Jesus died, as you recall, at the time of Passover because he was the picture of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed. And at his resurrection, we read from 1 Corinthians 15 that at that time, when he rose from the dead, he was the first fruits of those who were yet to be resurrected in the future. And Pentecost was a feast when wheat was gathered and another offering of first fruits was made. So there really was significance to the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost because that would be, these people would be the first fruits of believers that would inherit all that the body of Christ inherits, according to Ephesians 1 and 2 Corinthians 5. So everyone gathered there that day, uh, were brought into the church. The church, they were the first fruits of the harvest yet to come. I mention this because it's important we see that God sent the Spirit 
on the day of Pentecost because it was important in keeping with Leviticus 3, 23 and all of the feasts. So it was not because the disciples were pleading for the Holy Spirit, as many teach today. The Holy Spirit didn't come in response to their prayers and pleading for him to come, but rather because this was God's ordained day that the Spirit would come. Passover, Christ's death, first fruits of the resurrection, and now the birth of the church, the body of Christ. So 120 people are gathered there, as we saw last week, in an upper room. Some think it was a room in the temple. Regardless of the location, what's important is that this whole group of 120 were baptized by the Spirit, not just the 12 apostles there. They heard a noise, noticed that it was like a strong rushing wind. It was hard to describe, and that's the closest thing. But there was no wind. And the word wind in Hebrew and Greek is the same word for spirit. Notice this happened suddenly. So it's a sense of an element of surprise, even though they were there waiting for the Spirit to come. Notice, too, that they were sitting, which indicates that they weren't praying because the posture for prayer back then was on your knees or standing. So what happened to all of them at that moment, we see actually described for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. The tongues as a fire rested on each of them. And this shows that they were all, everyone who was present, received the Spirit at that moment. It was the same for everybody there. A work of God done in an instant for the entire group, not something that individuals were seeking. We have to understand the difference between being baptized with the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Scripture clearly defines baptism of the Spirit, as I read in the verse before to you, as an act where Christ, we are placed into his body. It happens the moment we trust Christ for salvation. Romans 6, Galatians 3, and the 1 Corinthians uh, speak of this. This is a sovereign work of God, a one-time event that is not repeated. Rather, it is like the one-time event of when you trust Christ, you are justified. You are declared righteous at that moment. And then you are also adopted. You don't necessarily know that's going on at the moment you trust Christ. You may not feel that's going on, but at that moment you are placed into the body of Christ. You are, are adopted into his family, and you are declared righteous. So the believers here at Pentecost, they were in a unique situation because the Spirit couldn't come until Jesus ascended. Pentecost was a one-time event as this transition from the Old Testament age of Judaism and the focus on the law transitioned into the beginning of a new thing, a mystery in the Old Testament, the church, the body of Christ. This is the church age. We don't build entire doctrines on these events. We don't sell all our possessions and have all things in common, as though the first church did. We don't select leaders by casting lots, as they, we saw last week. We have to look at the whole of New Testament teaching, teaching given to the church to learn that every believer has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. Romans says, if you don't have the indwelling spirit, you are not his. You're not a believer. That happens the moment we trust Christ for our Savior from our sin. So on this very all-important day of Pentecost so many years ago, these believers were all placed into the body of Christ, and this body was the birth of the church. In verse 4 we read that all were filled with the Holy Spirit. 
The filling of the Spirit is different than the baptism that we just discussed. You are, con you are never commanded in Scripture to be baptized by the Holy Spirit, but you are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As Ephesians 5 says, we are to continuously be filled or controlled or dominated by the Holy Spirit. As Colossians 3.16 states as well, we are to be under his control. So the result of the filling of the Spirit is, as Paul says, you'll be singing songs, you'll have psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and a thankful heart, you'll behave properly in your role, in your family, and as an employer or as an employee. We are to be confessing our sins, dying to our self-centeredness and self-focus, and constantly, consciously living in the awareness that we're in His presence, filling our mind with His truth from His Word, transforming how we think. That is what the Word of God does when we are filled with the Spirit. We are to let His Word dwell in us richly. So this is to be continuous, the filling of the Spirit. What was the result of the filling of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? They began to speak in other tongues. It is clear from the rest of the verses here in the context and from the word that's used that this is not a personal, private, ecstatic speech. This word used here for tongues is glossa, which is the word for languages. This seems to be where so much confusion comes into play. The ability to speak in languages has become confused with being filled with the Spirit. But speaking in other known languages was not the norm for every believer who were filled with the Spirit. We'll see in Acts 4, 6, 7, 9, and 13 that that did not happen. When commanding believers in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit, remember I mentioned the results, you'll speak to one another in Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, you'll have a thankful heart, and if there was ever a place and you will speak in tongues, that's where it should have been, but that is not what's included when he's talking about what you're like when you're filled with the Spirit. We don't have time to do an extensive study on this, obviously, but I remind you that speaking in languages in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 21, we read that this was to be a sign for unbelieving Israel. And as we see in our study of this book, of, uh, in this book, our study, we're going to see Gentiles will receive the Spirit, like Cornelius, and they spoke in languages, and that was convincing proof to the Jewish believers that they had received the Holy Spirit, just like the Jewish believers had received the Spirit. The last group to speak in tongues in the book of Acts is John the Baptist's disciples who missed out on getting the rest of the gospel and came to understand the truth and were saved. So every group, Jews and Gentiles, were given this ability at different times to speak in languages showing there is equality for everybody in the church. There's not haves and haves nots. This was a miraculous gift and outside of the book of Acts, in 1 Corinthians, an early letter to an early church, we don't we see it in action. As I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 14, it was a sign of judgment to unbelieving Israel. It was not about edifying yourself. This purpose was fulfilled, and as the, act, uh, the apostles died, and that transition from Old Testament Israel being the focus into this new thing, the body of Christ, the transition was complete. That's why as you read the later letters in scriptures like Ephesians and Romans and 1 Peter, they even discuss spiritual gifts in those books, but they do not speak of the miraculous sign gifts. If you look at church history, 
the speaking of unknown languages and tongues was not known from the close of the apostolic era when they all died off until the early 20th century, um, other than in some groups and splinter groups that were involved in heresy throughout church history, not Orthodox Christianity. When this new movement began to emerge, it was not like the tongues in the Book of Acts. Nobody had to practice or go to a seminar or be told to let your mouth hang open and make simple sounds in order to develop this gift. As the Spirit gave them utterance, they spoke what he gave them to say. I like what one author said regarding it here in Acts 2. Someone might say, yes, but at Pentecost they did speak in tongues. True. But that is not the emphasis, nor is it a part of the other examples of filling. In Acts 2, the emphasis is upon the fact that everybody heard about Jesus. So if you ask whether a person is spirit-filled, the only way to answer that question is by determining whether or not he or she speaks often and effectively about Jesus. It is not by whether he or she speaks in an unintelligible language or does a miracle. The question is, does he or she testify to Jesus and does God bless that testimony in the conversion of men and women?" End of quote. Well, this brings us to what happens next. The evidence of the Holy Spirit's arrival in verses 5 through 11. Devoted Jews are all there because they're commanded to be there for the Feast of Pentecost. And because the Jews were commanded, they were all there for the feast, and there were Jewish people from every part of the known Roman Empire. And they too heard this great noise, that they could only call a rushing winds kind of noise, and so they gathered to see what in the world is going on. Then they heard the apostles and the others speaking to them in their own native language. We read in verse 7 that they were amazed and astonished. Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? I mean, what they're really saying, are you kidding? This is the backwoods, this is redneck country, these people, and they're, they're not cultured, and they're speaking in our own language. I remind you what Nathaniel said when he was said, come see we, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So this wasn't a popular place to be from. <clears throat> so uh, they were quite shocked that these Galileans with their accent were speaking to them in their own native language. In verses 8 through 11, it lists all the places in the Roman Empire that these devout Jewish people were from. So they heard in their own language being declared the mighty deeds of God. So having used the sound of wind to gather the people, now it is the work of the Holy Spirit who will convince those there that these men and women speaking to them, they're not blasphemers. They're not the heretics that the religious leaders declared that they were, but they are speaking for Christ. <clears throat> of course, there were mockers there, there always are mockers, who ridicule, and their best guesstimate is that everybody's drunk with sweet wine. That is really pathetic. I, I, I just can't even get my head around that thought, because that's not how people who are drunk act and speak. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> Paul uses the analogy in Ephesians 5 to not be drunk or controlled by wine. That, that is sin, but be filled, dominated, and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Alcohol causes one to lose control, uh, but a person filled with the Holy Spirit has self-control and glorifies God. 
Really haven't ever heard of a drinking party that was already in full swing by 9 a.m. That's when most are, are sleeping it off. And, uh, <clears throat> and then besides, they're all articulate in speaking in foreign languages. But whoever said that mockers are clear thinkers about truth and reality. So this special day of Pentecost, when the church was born, makes it clear that there would be a new unity in the Holy Spirit that would go beyond any nationalities and languages and backgrounds. So the first sermon is given here in 14 through 36. <clears throat> From the very start, God has used the preaching of his word. That, that is to be the priority for his church. So Peter, who I remind you, some 50 days earlier, was a coward in fear, uh, denying he even knew Jesus. But now, he's standing up boldly, proclaiming with no fear the first sermon to the church. Sadly, modern man has decided that the preaching of the word is not that important. It's more important that we make people feel good about themselves and entertain them. To, and that's how we'll build our church. But God's plan has always been to gift different individual men to teach the word of God to the church, who will in turn go out and do the ministry in the power of the Spirit. Verse 14, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. So at this point, he's probably speaking in the common known language, Aramaic, so everybody is hearing him in one language. As I said, it's hard to imagine 50 days ago, uh, a servant girl at a fire is saying, you know, you got a Galilean accent like that, Jesus. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And here he is, standing up in front of thousands with an amazing boldness. What was actually happening here on this important day was connected to what the prophet Joel said in Joel chapter 2. Verse 17, and it, is, <clears throat> and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So we see from just the beginning of this verse that he establishes we are in the last days. The last days began when Jesus came the first time. And during these thousands of years, God has been calling Jewish people, though they certainly are the minority, <clears throat> and Gentiles into his body to salvation. The complete fulfillment of the book of Joel and this prophecy will one day be fully realized in the millennial kingdom. But here on the day of Pentecost and throughout all of the church age that we're living in now, God has given us a foretaste of life in his kingdom by knowing the work and the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Not everything Joel said here would come to pass in this church age when the Spirit of God is poured out on all of mankind. Uh, that hasn't happened. Then the sons and daughters will prophesy, young men see visions, old men dream dreams. All mankind has not yet had God's Spirit poured out on them. That is a future day coming when Christ reigns from Jerusalem and all who enter the Millennial Kingdom will believe. As they, that's why they're entering in the Millennial Kingdom. As verse 19 speaks of wonders in the sky and signs of earth, of, uh, that there's blood and fire and vapor and smoke, and that the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of our Lord shall come and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These are signs spoken of in Joel that have not all happened. They did not happen that day at Pentecost. 
These events that Joel mentions are in connection with the coming great and glorious day of the Lord. We've had the privilege of studying the book of Revelation in this group in the past, and we have seen the events where God is pouring out his wrath on this earth during the seven-year tribulation. Revelation 8 and 9 and 14 and 16 speak about these events mentioned by Joel. In Matthew 24, Jesus spoke about the change in the sun and the moon and the stars. It's all going to be darkened, and he will light up the sky when he comes back with the millions following him. Peter wants these people to understand that these are the last days. They have begun. For that to be true, there has to be a Messiah who has come. And this is the point of his sermon. He is giving irrefutable evidence that Jesus is that promised Messiah. So the next points in his sermon are to show his life and death and resurrection prove that he is Messiah. Peter challenges those listening to him as he reminds them of all the things Jesus did. I mean, they were there. A lot of these people saw him even raise Lazarus from the dead. He performed amazing things, <clears throat> and it proved his deity. Verse 23 is critical. We read, This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. This is the only time in the New Testament this word is used, delivered up. And it speaks of one betrayed or given over to his enemies. And it is God who gave his son to be the savior. And this was all his predetermined design and plan from eternity past. It was predetermined. It was marked out. It was the purpose of God's will. The amazing truth of the gospel message is that Jesus Christ was delivered over to death because God had planned it and ordained it from all eternity past. It was in the foreknowledge of God. And in the Greek word used for foreknowledge, it is far more than the truth that God saw in advance that the nation would reject him and crucify their Messiah. No, this was God's carved out plan from eternity past. Yet, notice, it never allowed the people who were involved to think that they weren't responsible for their actions. Peter then accuses his listeners of being guilty of nailing Jesus to the cross. They sought the death of Jesus. It was carried out by godless Roman soldiers. The stunning reality about God and his sovereignty and his carving out exactly what he says is going to happen, happening, is that he even uses evil men to accomplish his will. And I think this verse is such a perfect picture of side by side God's absolute sovereignty and choice along with man's human responsibility. God made this plan, he carried out this plan. Every detail was orchestrated by God, and yet the people involved, they were responsible for everything that they did. Human responsibility, God is sovereign. Peter goes on in his message to get to the heart of the gospel, which is the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead is the greatest proof that he is the Messiah and proof that God accepted that sacrifice he made for sinners on the cross. Again, Peter quotes an Old Testament prophetic Psalm 16 as proof that David was speaking about the Messiah and that the Messiah put his trust in God. This quote from David uh, brought Peter, he brought this up in his sermon because he reminds them, we all know King David died. We know where his a grave is. We've seen, we know where King David's buried. So he wasn't, David wasn't speaking about himself. He was speaking about a future resurrection of their Messiah. 
This is further proof that Jesus is the one raised up who fulfilled Psalm 16. Peter just continues to point them to scripture after scripture to prove Jesus fulfilled all the messianic promises and prophecies. He was now exalted at the right hand of God and it is indeed the Holy Spirit who they had just seen his amazing power themselves. And the Holy Spirit is witnessing and giving the power of what he was doing that very day in front of this large crowd. God has made Jesus Lord and Messiah and you crucified him. So, what is the response? Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? You know what? There really isn't any greater question than this because how you answer this question determines where you spend eternity. It is a critical question. So it only makes sense that this would be a... a question that Satan would love to bring about a great deal of confusion so people don't have the right answer to this question. What should we do? We have to get this answer right because it's eternal consequences. There was a great anguish by the people who heard this message preached. There was horror because they realized their own sin and their own guilt in being part of killing their Messiah. This was the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing these people to a place to see how sinful they are. This is the same work the Holy Spirit is doing today, bringing individuals to an awareness that we're wicked. We've offended a holy God. We have nothing good in and of ourselves. And the answer to the question is repent. That's what you need to do, repent, which means to turn away from your sin. This involves having a true hatred of your sin Seeing your sin as evil to a holy God, and there is a desire to turn and forsake that sin. So real repentance is not just, I'm sorry that bad things I've done, but has the idea of forsaking our sins as we turn and commit ourselves to Christ. Then Peter tells him to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. No one is to be a secret believer. This is a public act. An act that would not have been easy for any of them. Think about this group of people. There has been confusion and error perpetuated from verse 38 for centuries. For these Jewish people, though, think about it, to identify themselves publicly as a follower of Jesus, to be publicly baptized in his name, was quite a cost, just as it is in so many countries today. You, you risk losing everything and being completely an outcast. Peter is telling them to show that their faith and the repentance is genuine by being obedient to follow the Lord, by being publicly baptized. You recall the rich young ruler asked Jesus the same question, what should I do to have eternal life? And Jesus knew exactly that the rich young ruler, his God, was his money. And so Jesus said, sell everything you have and come follow me. Well, that's not the gospel, but he put his finger on the problem of why this man didn't uh, see his need. Well, Rab, salvation is not based on being baptized. It's not based on selling all that you have. Rather, it is a call to true repentance that will become obvious by the person's being willing to submit to the Lord and to do what scripture says. You can't take this one verse and try to make it a proof text that one has to be baptized in order to be saved because you have to look at all of the scripture where, and it, the whole of scripture 
teaches the opposite. It this verse, the way it reads in our language, contradicts what the rest of Scripture teaches, that salvation is by faith alone. Baptism is an outward act. It's to reflect what's happened in a person's heart who has believed the gospel. We will read in Acts about men like Cornelius who believed the gospel, they received the Holy Spirit, and then they were baptized. Baptism follows salvation. It is not part of how you have salvation. Then it would be a work which we have done. Titus reminds us, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Not by works, uh, great, I mean, we all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. And another important verse, I think, that really brings clarity is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 14. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. They are not the same thing. And he said, I didn't come in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Paul makes it clear that water baptism, that's not part of the gospel message. Paul wasn't called to go around preaching and baptizing everybody. Rather, he was to proclaim the gospel message. And baptism is not how we are saved. It is an act of obedience to show that we have had a change within our hearts. The reason we are to repent is for the forgiveness of our sins. So baptism follows the fact that we're for, when we are forgiven. It is to be a step of obedience for every true believer. The word that was used here in verse 38, be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, can just as accurately be translated from the Greek word because of forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7 1, tells us, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace and the fact that you were baptized. No, no, it's all about what he has done. There is nothing we can do to add to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. You know what, he really didn't need to come if there was enough things that we did to earn our way to heaven. And then we don't have time to do the life of the church, but there's so much great to learn from these last verses where 3,000 people responded to that message that was preached by Peter at that time. Their hearts were moved and they, their priority in the early church, this first church, was they wanted to learn more. Think about, we saw this last week, post-resurrection, 40 days, Jesus is teaching the apostles, meeting, explaining how all the scriptures had to be fulfilled and all the messianic. And that's what they're teaching them. The people had a love. They wanted to know the truth. They, they ate together. They broke bread together. They remembered the, the sacrament of taking the Lord's Supper together. They shared what they had in common. They were under con the control of the Holy Spirit, so they had a desire to learn what was taught. They didn't think that because now I have the Holy Spirit, now I can be a Lone Ranger, and I don't need anybody else to tell me anything because I got the Spirit telling me. Now that's not how that goes. They were listening and teaching. It was the priority. They applied then what they were taught, and they were loving each other and sharing with each other as anyone had need. They were um, praising God and having favor with all the people around. You know what? It made such an impression on other people. They're like, wow, look at these people. And it says they're adding daily to the church because they watched them apply the truth of God's word. This is what the New Testament church is to look like. Learning God's word has to be the priority. Applying it to how you live has to be the priority. And the norm, how grievous it must be for Christ to look at those who claim to be his church today.
who go through religious motions and traditions, yet are far from having his heart, and don't even know his truth, and don't even make an effort to know it with accuracy. Most are about getting more numbers added and trying to make people there happy. Satan has done a masterful, wicked job in bringing confusion to the true message of the gospel. I hope that each one of you here has come to that place of real repentance where you really have, have recognized how holy God is and how wicked you and I really are. By faith you must turn from yourself to Christ and his work on behalf of vile sinners like we are for forgiveness of sins. And when we trust him alone, he sends his Holy Spirit to indwell us. And you know what? The Spirit does that work to convict us of our sin. He comforts us when we're in despair. He helps us understand the Word of God. And we have just looked at how it all began. This is the first church. This is the birth. And we're, it has continued these thousands of years. Now we're in 2014. Have you ever had your heart pierced over your sin like these people did? If not, I pray today will be the day you call on Him to be your Savior and turn from your sin and your pride and your self-sufficiency and repent and be saved. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you let us see the birth of your church. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that he opens our eyes to hear truth, to see truth in your pages of scripture. I thank you for his work of conviction of sin and comfort and strengthening when we are weak, Lord, we thank you for sending your spirit to help us live this life as it's our turn to make a difference in this world for you. I pray that you will protect us as we go, protect our minds from error. In Jesus' name, amen.